Good morning, everyone. If you would turn your Bibles this morning to Romans 8, we're still making our journey through that long chapter. The title of this morning's message is Encouraging Words for Difficult Times. We'll be looking at uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28. Verse 26 starts off, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. In 1978, there was a book that was published that would end up selling over 10 million copies, and it eventually made its way into the Guinness World Book of Records for being the book that was on the New York Times bestseller list for the longest period of time. According to the Guinness Book of Records, it was on that list for 598 weeks. Wow. There's a book called The Road Less Traveled by psychiatrist M. Scott Peck. That's a pretty impressive record as far as publishing goes, sales. But what's most notable about that book is not so much the number of weeks that it's spent on the bestsellers list, but rather it's the very first line of the book itself, which starts off with three simple words. Life is difficult. And the reason that the book became so well known for its opening statement is because it's a phrase that resonates with every person who grows to maturity. I mean, if you think about kids, kids have an innocence and a resilience about them that they can go through some pretty horrific things and really bounce back and somehow make it through and still wake up daily with a positive and, uh, and a joyful outlook. Even in the most horrendous conditions, kids have a certain resilience that are able that allows them to be able to get through that. But when you reach adulthood, where the responsibilities of life accumulate and the stresses accumulate, then life becomes very tough and challenging. I mean, think about some of the things within our own daily lives that make life difficult, right? Those moments in our lives where we've got difficulties in our marriages, in our marriage relationship. When our kids, for those of us who have kids, when our kids are in rebellion, or when our kids walk away from the faith, dysfunction at work, dysfunction in society, we are bombarded with it anytime you open any app to see what's going on in the news. Caring for aging parents, ministering to sick and broken loved ones, the pressures that come from not having enough money, right? Financial pressures make life difficult. Dealing with houses and cars that are constantly needing to be repaired, especially when you don't have the money to do it. 
uh, personal health struggles, the struggles of aging. I think some of us are feeling that more in this room than others. Why'd you look at me? And the eventual, and, and this is for all of us, the, the daily fight against sin and temptation and just the corrupting influence of this world. All of those things, when you think about the barrage that we face on a daily basis of all of those kinds of things, it's no wonder that people moan and groan and complain about how difficult life can, can, can be. And that's because the fact of the matter is that in the realm of this fallen world that we're all living in, life truly is difficult. The author of Ecclesiastes sums it up in this way. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. All of us can resonate with what he's saying there. We, we've all had that experience of, of what he's describing about this unhappy business that God has given us to deal with in this fallen world. And so in light of this daily onslaught, it's easy to see why people become weary and heavy laden and why some are tempted to throw in the towel altogether, either by shirking their responsibilities and giving themselves over to pursue a life of hedonism, just saying, eat, drink, and be merry. This just isn't worth it. Or even getting pressed to that point of despair where they take their own lives. We know that's a reality. Now, while these might appear to be the typical reality for what we would say is the world, those that don't know the Lord, unfortunately, that's not restricted to unbelievers, that type of response. Amazingly, God's people are capable of doing the very same things. In fact, the difficulties of life can so demoralize and even anger the Christian to such an extent that we can begin to believe the lie that this walk after Christ is just not worth it. It's just for the birds. This pain is just too much, and, and, and there's got to be a, a different way around this. If we're not on our guard against that kind of temptation and grumbling, we can easily become like the Israelites who found themselves after the Exodus in the difficulties of the wilderness, right? When they experienced the difficulties and discomfort of the wilderness, it wasn't long before they lost sight of who it was that just rescued them out of the tyranny that they were under. And they began to pine for the meat pots and the bread that they had back under that tyranny back in Egypt. Somehow, that life that they were crying out to God for to re release them from, they finally, they somehow wanted to go back to that again. Because life in the present circumstance, they deemed was too difficult. We have to remember that weariness of soul can become a gateway to great temptation, to the great temptation of abandonment. You hear about people apostatizing all the time, right? It, it, it often results because life becomes difficult. And all of a sudden, their view of what the Christian walk was supposed to be like finally loses its luster. And they begin to show themselves for who they really were. Never with us. They went out from us, but they were never of us, as John says in his first epistle. People abandon their jobs and their marriages and responsibilities because... Those things have a way of becoming hard and wearisome over time. And the easiest thing, the easiest way to get relief from that difficulty is just to cut yourself loose from it, to just bail out, to cut and run. But thankfully, 
The psalmist was moved by the inspiration of God to remind us of the proper remedy that we as God's people have when we have weariness in our soul. And he gives us that in Psalm 119, verse 28. He writes, My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to thy word. It's an acknowledgement that he's weary with sorrow, with the sorrow of this world and the things that happen to us. But then he doesn't run. He turns to God and he cries out to God in prayer saying, strengthen me by your word. When life is exceedingly difficult and we're tempted to give up, God has given us a powerful resource to turn to. And that's the text of the Old and New Testament. It's the truth of his counsel that, we, that gives us the perspective we need in those moments. And the strength to not only hang in there, but also to prosper. He makes it possible for us to prosper in the midst of difficult times. And that's what we've been given in these verses that we read this morning in Romans, verses 26 through 28. Through the Apostle Paul, God has provided to the persecuted and heavy laden church of Rome at that time, and then by extension to us as we're reading it now in this New Testament context, He's given us the words of truth that will strengthen our weary souls and that will help us flourish in the midst of any difficulty and that we experience under the sun in this fallen world. So let's kind of walk through these passages together and see what this encouragement is, what this strength is that God has given us through his word. Look at verse 26 of Romans 8, the beginning of it. He says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. I mean, what a great first word of encouragement. In context, if you remember the last time I taught in Romans, Paul's just been talking about how we, the blood-bought children of God, along with all of creation, are groaning inwardly as a result of being subjected to the futility of this world. Right? It's part and parcel of living in a fallen world that it's going to be difficult. Things are not as they should be. We talked about that last time. Sin has ruined everything and made life difficult for everyone and everything. Nothing is as God has originally intended it to be. And so when you look at verses 19 through 23 in Romans 8, we see that creation is waiting, remember we said with eager longing, as, uh, as, he's, if, he, as if creation's on its tiptoes waiting for that day to come. Creation is waiting to be freed from the bondage of corruption that it's currently in as a result of the fall. And God's redeemed people are also waiting eagerly with, with eager longing for the consummation of our adoption as sons. And, he, and he, coins, he puts that all together with that whole concept of the redemption of our bodies. That day is coming. We're looking forward to that day when the Lord Jesus comes and he makes all things new. But until then, we find ourselves in a state of perpetual weakness. He calls us here in, the, in that passage. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That word weakness talks about feebleness, frailty, lacking of strength. That's why we find life difficult. Because we, everyone in this room, even at the strongest, are weak. George Costanza's father was right. You're weak! <laughs> and that's all of us. We in and of ourselves, we lack the strength to handle life with any sort of ease. 
We have moments where things are easy, but there's a lot of moments where things are hard. But God in his kindness has given us his spirit to indwell us that strengthens us in that weakness. It's the fulfillment of the promise that the Lord gave to the apostles and to the church at the Last Supper. In John 14, you remember these words that Jesus spoke? He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows, sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit, who has sealed every believer and indwells every believer, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of the power from on high that Jesus promised to give every one of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus so that we might live victoriously in this fallen world. And so it's by his very presence within, that, within us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So how is it that he helps us in our weakness? Well, if we were to just focus on that topic alone, there would be multiple sermons. So we don't have the time for that. But let's review on what God has given to us about this truth, about how the Spirit helps us, by looking at just what he's told us about the Spirit's ministry in chapter 8 alone, of what we've just been going through over the last few weeks. So if we turn to Romans 8, we will see these five ways that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. First, the Holy Spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death. We find that in verse 2 of chapter 8. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law, the only thing that the law could do was condemn us before our conversion to Christ. All of us were guilty before the law because all we could do was sin. But by the Spirit's work of regenerating us, granting us the gift of faith, and then upon believing when he applied the righteousness of Christ to our lives, he freed us from the law of sin and death. Just in that moment. We were weaklings, unable to do that on our own, and yet by the application of Christ's righteousness to our life, through faith, he has done that for us. He helps us in our weakness in that way. But not only in the way of setting us free from the law of sin and death, the next thing that the Holy Spirit does, as given to us in Romans chapter 8, is that he enables us to experience life and peace now. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So living according to our sinful desires and our, and our fleshly drives, which is the only way that the unregenerate can live, all of that leads to nothing ultimately but death, is the way the scripture describes it. Not immediate physical death, but death in, in total. It eventually ends in death. And of course, the second death in judgment before the Lord at the end of time. And then along with that sentence of death is all of the pain that comes with that. 
the guilt, the condemnation, the joylessness, the suffering. But when the Holy Spirit awakens you and gives you the desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, the result is polar opposite. It says that he gives us life. And as Jesus says, he gives us life and that more abundantly, not only in this life, but eternally. But in addition to life, he also gives us peace. That, that beautiful thing we've all been waiting for and been looking for, all of us, that if you talk to anyone, all they want is peace, right? You hear people often ask for that. All I just want is a life of peace. Well, you will not have peace until you are rightly related with God. But once you are in that relationship with the Lord, that true shalom comes into your life, you have genuine peace, the peace that we have been longing for since the beginning and that God graciously grants us through Christ and through the work of his spirit in our lives. Then thirdly, the Holy Spirit, he helps us in our weakness by assuring us of our victory over death through the promise of the resurrection. We see that in verse 11 of chapter 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I think that it's uh, arguably the greatest fear that man has is death. Everyone is afraid of what's going to happen beyond this time that they have on earth. And yet Jesus' resurrection removes that crippling fear from us by guaranteeing that we will be raised as well if, in fact, the Holy Spirit indwells your body as the temple of God. That is a promise he's given us. He will raise us just as he raised Jesus. We in our weakness could never do anything like that. We were, we were all like Lazarus, right? Completely dead. We'd have no ability to raise ourselves from the grave. And yet, at the word of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can stand in our grave and walk out just as Lazarus did. And that's by his enabler. The fourth way the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, he enables us to be victorious over sin. We see this in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you by the spirit, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So on our own, again, we can't help but sin, right, in our unregenerate flesh. We, we just can't help it. It's just part of who we are. But with the indwelling power of the Spirit, we can put those sinful deeds to death, and we can live increasingly sanctified lives. He's empowered us to live obediently unto him. There is no can't in the Christian life any longer. He's enabled us by his power. And then lastly, we see in verses 16 and 17 that the Holy Spirit bears witness to the fact that we are God's kids. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. God, we know from the scriptures, bless you, cannot lie. Therefore, if he testifies within us by way of the Spirit that we belong to God as his adopted children, that is a sure thing. 
totally guaranteed. If you're looking for a sure thing in this world, just look to God's word and his testi testimony about you being his child. If his spirit is testifying to your spirit that you are his child, it is a done deal. There's nothing that can break that. Talk about assurance. Talk about blessed assurance. And that's, again, nothing that comes from us. It is an assurance that is fully guaranteed by him and him alone. That is genuine rest. These are just some of the ways that the Holy Spirit ministers to us and blesses us in our weakness. But this passage doesn't stop there. Paul further encourages us by giving us one more significant way in which the Spirit comes to our assistance. And that's in the spiritual discipline of prayer. We see that in verses 26 and 27 of Romans 8. And I'll read that again for us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know, as easy as prayer may seem on the surface, I think everyone in this room would agree that prayer is, can be a very challenging discipline to be involved in. I mean, it's more than simply uh, reciting some memorized, pious-sounding words, like many are taught as, as kids, to just do something rotely, and they think that is, that is prayer, just by mouthing those words. Or like what Jesus uh, was warning the his, his disciples against in on the Sermon on the Mount, saying, talking about prayer being nothing but vain repetition. Just because it sounds pious and holy does not mean you're actually praying unto God. Prayer is actual communication with the Almighty, with the one who created all that we see even before us, and everything that we even don't see, all that is seen and unseen, right? Mm -hmm. Prayer is communication with that being. And the way that it works is that God speaks to us first. How? He speaks to us in his word. And then, like in any conversation we might have with a loved one, we're to speak back to God. But what we say should be a response to what he has first spoken to us. Prayer is not a time for us to simply dump our every desire upon God believing him to be some kind of a genie that is there to fulfill every wish that we have. That is a worldly understanding of who God is. As Jesus taught us, prayer ultimately is a time where we are to ask for God's will, not our will to be done. And as Jesus demonstrated when he taught the Lord's Prayer, he also showed that there's an order to prayer. And all of you know this, but it's it's worth having this little reminder uh, because I find it very helpful for myself in my own prayer closet. On um, on tailoring my prayer that follows the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, which you're all familiar with, but we'll just review it together. Our time of prayer should first be characterized by a time of adoration, which is the A in ACTS. It's a time where we first and foremost, give glory and worship unto this God, this King that we're coming to, 
for, for all of the needs that we have. We first acknowledge his lordship over our lives and in the greatness of who he is and his character. And we can recite that before him, just as the Lord says in the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May you be set apart from everything else and be glorified for who you are. So adoration is to be a significant aspect of our prayer time. Then we are to be led into a time of confession, which is the C in the acronym Acts. It's a time where we bear our souls before the Lord and confess to him our inadequacies, our weaknesses, our failures. And we plead the blood of Jesus once again for that forgiveness, knowing that it has been paid in full. And yet we acknowledge that before him so that we are rightly related to him through forgiveness from him. And then thirdly, there is the T in the acronym Acts, which stands for Thanksgiving. Taking the time to thank the Lord for everything that he's done for us already. Every blessing we've enjoyed. Every chastening we receive from his hand for our good. Remember, Paul calls us to be thankful in what? In all things. That's good, bad, stressful. All of that, again, is ordained by God and overseen by him. And we are to thank him for its purpose in our lives. And then lastly... We come to that point where we bear our soul to him in terms of our needs. And that's supplication, the S in the, in, the, in the word X, where we finally cast our cares and our needs upon him. Just as the Lord taught us in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. There is The Lord knows that we have needs, and we are to come to our Father for those needs. But there's a proper place for us to begin to ask for them, and it's after we've acknowledged who he is in our life. So while having a guide like that, it's helpful to us, right? It can still be difficult to pray because prayer is um, Because of our weakness, it's hard to be in genuine communion with the Lord from a real focused standpoint. And also it's hard for us to know even what to, what to ask for in our prayer. I don't know if you've ever been that way, but sometimes I'll, I'll get into prayer and I know there's so many things that I should be praying about, but I just, you have that blank slate. It's like, oh my gosh, where do I even begin? And it's in this way that we are weak. And it's for this reason that the Holy Spirit has been given to help us. That word help is defined as heaving with us, helping us to lift a burden. And when I read that definition of help, it made me think, of Simon from Cyrene, who's plucked out of the crowd by the Romans to what? To help Jesus carry his cross on the Via Della Rosa. But it's the, that's kind of, in a sense, the idea of the Holy Spirit coming alongside us and helping us to lift that burden of prayer so that we can bring it to the place where God will bless it, where God will respond to it in the way that he desires to respond to it. And verse 26 tells us why we need this help. It's because we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Right there, it's even given to us. The truth is unvarnished for us here. We don't even know how to pray. We don't even know what to ask for. Even though we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and our minds and hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit, we are still absolutely clueless when it comes to our prayers. 
I like what Matthew Henry said. He said, we aren't competent judges of our own condition and needs. We're short-sighted, often only thinking in worldly terms. I was thinking that we, we, we become like Peter, right? We become like Peter when he heard Jesus proclaim that he is the Messiah, but that he has to go to the cross. What did Peter start to do? He tried to stop him. And Jesus rebukes him by telling him that essentially you don't set your mind on the things of God. You are setting your mind on the things of man. And that's us in our prayer office. We don't pray from a perspective that seeks to have God's will fulfilled. We just want our foothold. And I say that because I'm the poster child for that. Guilty of being of praying in that way. Or the other one that I thought of was like the mother of, of James and John, right? She comes to him, to the Lord Jesus, and asks, I want, could you, I want my sons to sit at your left and your right hand of your throne. <laughs> oh, truly, but what does Jesus say to her? You don't know what you're asking for. You have no idea what you're asking for. And that's how we come to prayer often. We are clueless in that way. But because of our cluelessness, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us before the throne of grace. That is an awesome, awesome encouragement for all of us. The Holy Spirit is our advocate, right? The scripture calls him the paraclete, the one who pleads for another uh, in a court of law, if you will. He's essentially our lawyer in that respect. He serves as our ambassador before the Father and intercedes on our behalf. But here's the kicker. He doesn't represent us in an attempt to get for us what we want. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, verse 27. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We may have no idea what to ask for in a given situation, but we can take heart because we know that as we go before the Lord with our groanings, the Spirit casts our cares before the Lord in such a way that he will be pleased to respond favorably to it. Mm -hmm. Just as Christ's righteousness redeems the imperfect works of men, so does the Holy Spirit redeem the imperfect prayers of the saints. That is a really encouraging thought, that you can pray poorly and still know that we have one who has our back and who is redeeming what we have said so that it is going before the throne of God in a way that will fulfill what God wants to perfectly do in our lives. So it's in light of this truth about the Holy Spirit's intercessory work on our behalf in prayer that we're to understand one of the most well-known and beloved verses in all the New Testament, and that's Romans 8.28. This is the context that we come to reading Romans 8.28, which we've all read, but I'll read it again here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This verse has become the Christian's go-to verse for solace and reassurance anytime that we have trouble or trials or tragedy. And understandably so, because it's a verse that affirms God's sovereign rule over all of life. You know, even the most confident, A-type, controlling personality among us knows that he or she can only do so much to influence and control an outcome of the things in their life, right? They, they know 
even as, as much bravado as they might have, they know they can't control everything. It's God alone, the maker and sustainer of heaven and earth, who is able to rule over all creation in such a way that he can bring to pass the exact outcomes that he wants, regardless of the free will choices and actions of his creation. So in context, what this means is that regardless of what situation I might find myself in, regardless of how feeble and clueless my prayer may be before the Lord, the Holy Spirit will intercede on my behalf and pray in such a way that God will absolutely guide the ultimate outcome of that situation so that it is good and beneficial for me, the one who loves God, the one who's been called according to his purpose. Now, in order to gain a deeper appreciation for this incredible verse, let's just walk through it together one more time. And we'll just take it section by section. And I'd like to use the, um, the translation of this verse from the New American Standard, because it fits the way it's taught. And I, and I think for, I've always, I've learned it this way, and this is where I think it more clearly communicates the essence of what's there. Because listen to it, it's, it's a little different than the ESV uh, puts it. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So let's work through it. First off, and we know. Right off the bat, we're given a statement of 100% assurance and confidence. It doesn't say, and we think. It doesn't say, and we hope. It says, and we know. It's a settled truth about what is to be said. Excuse me. It's a settled truth that what is to be said is absolutely true. Okay, so what do we know? We know that God causes all things to work together for good. Notice that the statement affirms that it's God himself who is the one who determines the outcome. It isn't chance. It isn't our lucky stars. It isn't karma. It isn't the power of positive thinking. You can't name it and claim it. You cannot positively affirm something in your mind and expect that reality to happen just because you affirmed it. God is the orchestrating mind and power behind it all that guides and directs all things so that they work together for good. Just as he took the earth when it was formless and void, on the first day of creation, and he transformed it into a beautiful paradise that he deemed to be very good when it was all said and done, so too does he take the chaos and the mayhem that often comes into our lives, and he transforms them so that they are also deemed to be by him very good for his people, for his elect. Also notice that the verse says that God causes all things to work together for good. That word work together in Greek is synergio, which where we get the word synergism. And we all know what that means. It means two or more working together. It's even more uh, descriptive in this, uh, with this definition. It's elements working together to produce an effect that is greater and different from the sum of the elements if each of those elements is working by itself. Get that idea? So you can have something that's working all by itself, and they'll, they'll have a certain effect. But when all of those elements are put together, 
to work together, what they can produce together is far greater and better than any of those working singularly on their own. That's the whole idea behind synergism. That's what's at work here, when God is working all things together for good. Next, look at the extent of God's reach in this matter. All things. God's sovereign rule over all creation is comprehensive. There are no maverick molecules, as R.C. Sproul says. There's nothing out of his control. There are no qualifications here either. All things means all things, everything. You know, when we buy something, we get product warranties, or you get a coupon, right? You go into the, into the store with a coupon. There's always this mouse type that's on there. And you go up and you're thinking you're going to get a 30% discount on a product you're going to buy. Oh, no, sir, that doesn't qualify for Levi jeans and, you know, Calvin Klein this and blah, 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 blah. Because there are qualifications to those coupons. When it comes to this promise from God, there are no qualifications. When he says all things work together for good, he means all things. That means that any temporary harm, evil, or suffering that's experienced will absolutely be used for a good and redeeming purpose. No situation will be overlooked or neglected. Everything will work for good. And then lastly, who is the... Who's this incredible promise made for? Who are the beneficiaries of this promise? I mean, does everyone on earth get to claim the assurance of this promise? No. The promise is for one specific group of persons. Those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. In short, this is a description of the elect. The people chosen before the foundation of the world and who were redeemed by the Lamb of God on Calvary's cross. That's who this verse is made for. And we know that it's referring to the elect, because it's the elect that are the only ones who can fulfill, who, who fit the description that I just read. To those who love God. Think about that. In our unregenerate state, we are enemies of God and we hate him. We're in rebellion against him, and we want nothing to do with him. In fact, if he was here right before us in our unregenerate state, we would, as a mob, kill him. And in fact, that is exactly what happened to Calvary. But it's because of the fact that he first loved us and poured his saving grace upon us that we were enabled to love him in return. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And even more directly, Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It was his work. He poured that ability to love him into our hearts. It's only the elect who truly love God. And then secondly, to those who are called according to his purpose. When God calls a person unto himself, it's never on a whim. And it's never so that the person could live for themselves. God's on a mission to redeem the elect, to build his church, to destroy the works of the devil, to usher in his kingdom, and to replace the present created order that is cursed with a glorious new heaven and new earth. 
And he has chosen a called out people to follow him and to participate with him in that incredible work. And so it's only the elect who are called by God, not only for salvation and not only to love him, but also to fulfill the greater kingdom building purpose that he's ordained for each of them, for each of us to be involved in. So I said at the beginning that the title of this message was Encouraging Words for Difficult Times. And by now I'm hoping that you see why I named it that way. It's true, I think everyone in this room would agree that life is difficult. It clearly has its difficult moments. And for many of us, it may become increasingly more difficult as the years go on. But the great word of encouragement that we receive today is that we are not alone and that we are not without a guaranteed promise that we can absolutely hope in. First, we've been given the assurance that God himself is interceding on our behalf. We know from this passage that the Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God on our behalf, right? But also we're going to see as we make our way through Romans 8 that it's not only the Holy Spirit within us that is interceding for us, we have a great high priest who is currently in the heavens interceding for us before the Father. Both the Son and the Holy Spirit are both at work interceding for us, the blood-purchased children of God. But then this means that no matter how weak we may feel that we are in a moment, we know that the Lord himself totally has our back. He is, as we will see in Romans, he is for us. And he's actively at work helping us in the midst of our difficulties. And then secondly, we've been given the great promise that no matter what situations, predicaments, or circumstances we end up facing in life, God will absolutely work each of those situations, predicaments, and circumstances for an outcome, for a purpose that will be blessed with the glorious benediction of very good by God himself. He is the one who works everything for good. And when God says it's good, we know it is good. So, I think that's a pretty good word of encouragement. <laughs> I don't think you could top that. And I hope you walk away strengthened, especially in the midst of the next trial that you face, that you are absolutely not alone. God has promised to be with us. He promised, remember the Lord Jesus said, I will be with you until the end of the age. And when the end of the age comes, he will still be with us because he's returning for us. And until then, he has given us the spirit of promise that you saw in John 14. He said he will be with you for how long? Forever. That is a good word of encouragement and a life filled with difficulties. What a loving God. Father, we praise you for such a good word. How faithful you were, Lord, to preserve it for us 2,000 years after Paul's writing this, Lord, that we might be encouraged this morning, June of 2023, your children in this little fellowship to know that you have our backs, Lord. You are interceding for us, even in our weakness, even in the the cluelessness of our prayers, Lord, you have promised that you are going to redeem those prayers in such a way that you are going to answer in such a way that everything will work out for our good, for those who love you, for those who are called according to your purpose. Thank you for calling us according to your purpose. Thank you for pouring 
your love into our hearts that we might love you because you first loved us. We praise you and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.